I heard the one about the, uh, the man, the Cockney man in East London who was in a super big dilemma. Somehow, through carelessness maybe, he had fallen in love with two different women. He fell in love with uh, one beautiful woman named Susan, blonde hair, gorgeous, but he also fell in love with this other girl named Maria, who was a brunette and was also very, very beautiful. And at some point, his, he began to feel some issues inside of himself, and he went to one of his good friends and said, I've got this dilemma, I don't know what to do. And his friend said, are you crazy? Like, you can't keep both of these women going. You've got to choose one. You've got to go with one or the other, have one, but that's, that's it. You've got to work this out. And the, guy, and the guy in his Cockney English says, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and the guy says to him, well, you need to think about it, and why don't you try praying? He wasn't a church guy, but he said, why don't you try praying? God will help you. So the next day, he's, he's walking home in East London, and he comes across this old Roman Catholic church, and he decides to go in it. And he goes in, and he kneels down, and he begins to pray. And then after praying for a little while, he gets up and he runs out. And he runs out of the church, and he goes and he finds his friend, and he says, what a great suggestion it was to pray, because God answered it. And uh, he says, do tell, do tell. And, the, and he says, well, I, I, I kneeled down to pray, and I said, Lord, whom shall I have? And right then, the sun came through the stained glass window, and I looked up, and in big gold letters, it said, Ave Maria. <laughs> okay, sorry, y'all. <laughs> some of y'all think I need to have some help with his jokes. <laughs> Today, we're talking not about Ave Maria, but about Ave Maria. And we recognize that the church, you know, for 1,500 years, the Western church was about Latin. Everything was done in Latin. And so when we talk about what we're going to talk about today, it's frequently called Ave Maria because through the first 1,500 years, that's kind of where it was. And um, we're talking about what we would translate in English today as the Hail Mary. And for those of you who are completely sports fanatics, we're not talking about the past. We're talking about a devotional prayer that's out there. And um, so what we're doing today, we're starting a sermon series for the next three weeks, where we are looking at what we call the first Christmas carols. And the reason we're calling it that is if you go read all of the Christmas narratives and all the portions of the Luke that are about Christmas, you will see there are four different canticles or psalms or um, these ancient songs that are, find their way into Scripture. And we're talking about three of them. And this first one we're going to talk about, some of y'all think, wait, wait a minute, the Hail Mary... Like, I've heard that in other places. That's like a Roman Catholic thing. Actually, hold on. Like, the majority of it's from Scripture, straight up from Scripture. So, relax. We're going to be okay. <laughs> and that's what we're going to primarily look at today. What I want to do today is I want to give a little bit of background on the Hail Mary, and then I want to dig into a couple of, I mean, begin to decipher part of it and look at what it might say to us today as we live out our spiritual lives. And if you look at it, uh, the Hail Mary is traditionally divided into three parts. And two of those are directly from Luke's gospel. The third one was added later um, by the church, by the Roman Catholic Church. And we'll talk about that just very, very briefly. But the whole thing was put together and was in its final form in about the year 1500. 
But these first parts go way, way back before that, as I'll say more in just a few minutes. So I want to start with the, with the first piece of it, and I'll ask Jay to put up the, the very first part of it. This is uh, from Luke chapter 1, where we hear, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord's with you. That comes from Gabriel, um, the archangel, who encounters Mary. And just to put you back in that scene for a minute, as we begin to sort of wrap our minds around that we're headed towards Christmas, we think about Mary, this really young teenager who lives in the city of Nazareth, which is a backwater, small village. Scholars today say they think it was somewhere between 120 and 150 people in in Nazareth at the time. And Gabriel, this great archangel, appears to her. And, you know, she's probably shaking in her shoes, but he tells her, okay, hold on, don't be afraid. And he says to her, Hail Mary, that's how he starts, which is just a greeting. That's just saying hello. And then he goes on to say, you know, Mary, you're full of grace. And this whole idea here, um, I want to just pause on for a little bit to think about what it might mean for us and what it might ask of us. But full of grace, it's this idea that, um, as the authorized version of the Bible will later say, they translate it as endued with grace. Or I think it's interesting to look at the super modern translation from the message with Eugene Peterson. He uh, defines this whole first part of this chapter by saying it this way. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. God be with you. This idea that she's beautiful with God's beauty. That she's showing grace from God as she lives out her life that she's full of grace that way, and that she's this instrument of God's grace. And there's this moment here where you gotta, you got to stop and think for just a second because probably the single biggest cornerstone of the Christian faith is grace, that we don't earn salvation, that it's all about receiving this gift. In grace, we talk about being unmerited favor. But in this instance, God has apparently seen how she shares grace and has taken note And as Gabriel tells her, you have found favor with God. And that's the reason this whole discourse is taking place. Because you found favor with God because he's seen how you um, show forth this grace. And I think we just pause there for a minute and think about what this means. Because Mary, when when we hear this song said in Scripture, and as it's said as a devotional prayer or whatever else, and we hear full of grace, I think for us there are two things. One, it holds up Mary as an example of somebody who has served as an instrument of grace in the world. But at the same time, I think when we hear it, it should offer us a question about how we're doing. Are we living out our Christian life as instruments of God's grace? Are we allowing God and His Spirit to work through us to inject more grace into the world? That will change the world. That's part of the formula of God's working, uh, bringing about the fullness of his kingdom. And so I think each time we hear it, we might ask that question. And I don't think Christians can speak too much about practicing grace. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing this. I, I think about this past fall when um, Brant Jean took the stand on that trial with, against uh, Amber Geiger. What a moment of grace. I mean, he went all in saying, I forgive you, I love you, 
there's nothing you can do more than to honor him by coming to Christ, all these different kinds of stuff. It was such a moment of grace. I believe that moment of grace helped change the world, that it will make waves that will help change the world that way. And I think when we see Mary, she's an icon that way of being an instrument of God's grace in the world and a reminder to us to participate in that grace. And again, I I don't think we can give too many examples of how we do this. I read a recent example of a priest up in Portland, Oregon, who was telling the story about how his parish serves meals to the homeless at different times during the year. And, And on this particular story he was telling, he was talking about how on Christmas Eve, and I'm kind of amazed at this, that they served a meal to all the homeless on Christmas Eve because we're like still working to get people to volunteer to, to help with the services on Christmas Eve, much less stay late and cook meals. But they served a meal to the, to the homeless. And he talked about this one homeless guy who used to come to their church a lot who was named Big Ben. That was his nickname. And he said they got around all the way to 9 o'clock. They'd been working and serving and all this. They got down to the very last pot of soup and there was still a line way out the door and they were a little bit anxious about it, but they kept going. They got down to the, what they thought was the very last person. It was Big Ben. And he came up, and so they filled his bowl to the very, very top, thinking they were done. And he headed off to go sit down. And about that time, there was a young, um, older teenager who was homeless, looked like he'd been sleeping in the mud, who came forward, and they hadn't seen him. And he came up, and he saw that the pot was empty, and his eyes got big like he was going to cry. And everybody was reaching for their wallets because they're like, we're not going to let it leave like this. And right then, Ben had seen what was happening. And he turned around and he came back and he gave that guy his bowl of soup and uh, patted him on the face, messed up his hair and giggled. And the, the priest that was writing this article that was in the paper, he went on to say it was a tender moment that stood in contrast to the steel and concrete and cold that too often embrace those without hearth and home. It was a moment that knitted us together a little more tightly and made me proud of my species. Grace is an unmerited gift. And we get it from God just like we get forgiveness. And we're meant to be instruments the way Mary was and to turn around and share it in the world. And it changes things. It changes things. I want to tell one more story that I recently read. This is from a major newspaper in the last five years um, that was writing an article about this mission that's in Hawaii called Blue Water Mission. And this church, uh, they set up a restaurant whose total purpose was to serve quality food and for their congregation and for everybody else. But their real goal was to hire people who needed a second chance. And they would go out and try to recruit people who they knew needed a second chance. And the article focused on one woman. Um, her, Mar- her name was Mary Nelson. And Mary had, her mother had died when she was 14 in New York City. And Mary had gone onto the streets at age 14. And she made her living by selling herself. And at about four years of doing that, she tried to get a new start. And she moved all the way from New York to Hawaii but eventually found herself back doing the same thing. And this went on for a couple of decades. And finally, some of, their, some of the members of this church um, started ministering to her and trying to work with her and get her to see different things. And she ultimately came and tried it. 
And she said that she worked in the kitchen for six months just washing dishes because she didn't want to be around the good people. She didn't feel she was worthy. And then she went on from there with lots of love being given to her by the congregation to a different place. She got to where she said, I, I finally get to be the person I was never able to be. I get to help people. She went on to say, I get to help people without someone trying to take advantage of me. And when we think about how when you give out grace in the world, how it changes things, I love the, the final part. And this is written in a secular newspaper, this article I'm reading. But the article goes on to talk about how later on, a couple years in, this church did a mission trip from Hawaii to the Philippines to try to minister to the women of the night there in the Philippines. And so obviously this woman went and she said this. She says, I, I want those women to know there's hope. You can change. There are people out there that really want to help. And you've just got to believe. Just like you went out there and took a chance on the streets, you've got to take a chance on this as well. Hail Mary, full of grace. She's an icon for us, an example for us, and a challenge to us. Are we living like she did as an instrument of grace? That's part of how the world gets changed. That's the first part. The second part of the Hail Mary is also straight from Luke 1, from Scripture. And I'll ask Jay to change it over to that. Um, and this comes from a famous part of the Scripture where we give it its own name, the visitation. This is where Mary travels way down from Nazareth, down south to meet with her cousin um, Elizabeth. And when they meet, Elizabeth, who's, this, who's an older woman who's pregnant, her baby jumps in her womb. And then Elizabeth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Blessed are you amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. And if you read the whole passage, there are three different times that Elizabeth tells Mary, You're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. But I think one of the interesting things here is maybe it's not exactly like we imagine. And here I want to draw up on a couple threads from two people I love. Um, one is from the, the late biblical commentary, William Barclay, who was a professor at the University of Glasgow. And um, he wrote the daily Bible study series, which a lot of people still use to this day. And also Pastor Adam Hamilton. They both talk about um, the paradox of blessing. This idea that when God blesses you, it's not always exactly like you think it, like you may sometimes think it should be or want it to be. Um, William Barclay, in writing about this passage, this is what he says. Um, he says, this is a kind of lyrical song on the blessedness of Mary. Nowhere can we better see the paradox of blessedness than in her life. To Mary was granted the blessedness of being the mother of the Son of God, well might her heart be filled with a wondering, tremulous joy at so great a privilege. Yet that very blessedness was to be a sword to pierce her heart. It meant that someday she would see her son hanging on a cross. This idea that sometimes, and you look through the pages of Scripture, you see it, that God blesses us to be a blessing for others, but it's not a self-centered joy. It can sometimes come with, with a huge burden. And you see it with Mary. I mean, we don't think about it, but when Mary gets this first uh, visit by Gabriel, just stop and think about her for a minute. She's a young teenager. 
she wants to follow God. She's been demonstrating grace. But now the Holy, they're saying, well, no, we want the Holy Spirit to come on you and you're going to conceive and all this. And she's thinking, mm, I'm not sure how that's going to go over with my fiance. <laughs> I'm pregnant. That's the bad news. The good news is, right, that it's the Holy Spirit. Trust me. Well, he didn't believe her, right? It took an angel to visit him. But imagine that. And she, so I think the, when you see in Scripture, the first thing she does is go down to see Elizabeth. I think she's desperate. This is like a 10-day visit south. And she's thinking, she knows the Scripture that if you're pregnant out of wedlock, you're going to get potentially killed, all this. I mean, imagine the stress she's under. What a burden. And to carry all these secrets that she ponders. And then to later see her son killed the way he was and betrayed and all the things. Just think about that. And Elizabeth is telling her she's blessed three times. Blessings, I think, can be complicated. I was thinking about this the other day, um, completely different context, but one of the um, rock groups I like from the 80s, one of the guys was talking about um, how they were on tour again, and um, he was saying how much more he's enjoying it than when they were initially famous in the 80s, because in the 80s, they were the top thing, top of the list, and they, he, he basically said we couldn't go out when we visited on tour because we would get mobbed in really unsafe and unhealthy ways. And so they, had, they were prisoners in their hotel rooms. And now he's saying, I'm actually enjoying touring because I get out and I get to go see the cities and do all the different stuff. But I think back when they were so successful and how many musicians pray to be that successful, they're blessed, but it came with a big burden, right? But that's the way it sometimes works. And so when we hear Mary and we see, blessed is the fruit of your womb, blessed are you among women, I think it's a reminder of us of how complicated the blessing can be, that it can be a call to bless others that may not necessarily feel like a selfish blessing for us at the time. Lots, lots to think about with Mary on that. These two parts, okay, these two parts I've mentioned from Luke, they were both used really early in Scripture, like from the first hundred years in liturgy, but they weren't combined until about the year 1050, and they were put together. And then it became a devotional prayer to say these two things together. And it kind of went along that way for the next um, four, five hundred years that way. And people, the reformers in particular, kind of criticized it because they said, well, it's, you know, it's not actually a prayer because you're not really asking for anything. And Latimer and some others were, were in that, that boat. And, and I want to pause right there and just say, well, that's okay. Because part of what, Elizabeth, what, part of what Mary says later is, you know, generations are going to call me blessed. And people are going to honor me through the generation. So if there's no petition, that's okay. We're just honoring Mary, as you say those words from Scripture. But it didn't take long for people started adding petitions. And um, in time, over the next 500 years, that kind of gelled into one petition that came from the church. And Jay, if you'll put that one up. This is the final part of it. I'm not going to say a whole lot. But it's Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. There's a whole lot in that. More than I really probably want to say, but the, um, the idea that uh, there are a couple things that, that I would say, just point out at as we, as we look at it. You know, we can talk about how Mary hears us. There's scripture for, that, that people in the day can hear us. It's the witch of Windor. You may not want to know that whole story a whole bunch, but um, there is scriptural reference to, to the dead hearing us. And all these complications about can she hear all these different people praying and all the different stuff like that. I want to set that aside for a minute for another day. 
But I think the idea of her prayer, this prayer to her saying that we pray now in the hour of our death is always a constant reminder to us that we will die. There will be a death. And, there, and part of the spiritual life is remembering that our walk on this earth is about that long. And we say it on Ash Wednesday that dust you are and dust you're going to return. But there's something really powerful about knowing and thinking and living out your spiritual life knowing that there's an end, a day when we come before God that way. And if you've talked to anybody who's had a near-death experience, it'll change them. And living our spiritual lives knowing and thinking about that there's an end will change how open we are to God, I think. I know it did for me. I'll end with this. It's a little bit of a silly story. But when I was about seven years old, uh, I had one of these moments in, in a kind of a weird way. My dad flew a small private aviation plane. And we were, there were six of us in this plane headed to Colorado. We'd left Amarillo. It's 1030 at night. I'm seven years old. I'm in the kid's seat way in the back. And, uh, and we get maybe 30, 40 minutes out of Amarillo and everything inside the plane went dark. And uh, so my dad says to us, we have an emergency. And, and I'm in the back. I don't know what the emergency is. I'm seven. So I'm thinking we're going to die. So I'm back in there. And I think maybe he even said, y'all might pray or something. I don't know what he said, but we're in the back thinking we're going to die. Now I know the plane lost all electricity, but happily it was a clear night. And the landing gear was electric, meant they had to crank it down and slow down and do all this stuff. But we're in the back praying, and, th and I'm thinking, this is it. That night, I think, ultimately made me more open to God. And it matured me as a seven-year-old to think, I, I may die this night. Where, you know, it raised a whole other level of thoughts and questions and things where we are. I think that when we, ex when we experience a, a potential death that way, it changes us. And this prayer, pray for us at the hour of our death, is a constant reminder that that's something that's coming. I, as we prepare the season of Advent, I pray that when you hear the Hail Mary, and in a few moments, happily, we're going to hear the beautiful voice of Tiffany Brooks sing the Ave Maria. And when you hear those words, I encourage you to think about Mary as an icon of an instrument of grace and ask yourself the question about you being an instrument of grace. I pray that you'll think about the complexity of what it means to be blessed and think about how God's um, calling you to be a blessing to others. And then also to think about your final breath and how you live now and how it relates to that. Amen.